25 years ago today, the group that would eventually become our church first met at the home of Sal and Kathy LaPiccolo. The next Sunday, March the 6th, was the first time we met at the Highlands Clubhouse. And this period between the last Sunday in February and the first Sunday in March, we have always considered to be our church's anniversary. And so I'm very thankful today that God has been with us and helped us and so faithfully sustained us for these past five years. And I pray that He would continue to be with us and help us and keep us faithful to His Word and His will over hopefully many, many years to come. But as I was looking back at the past five years, I saw that today is the 261st sermon that we've had together. And this morning I wanted to start with a question. Of all those sermons, for however many of them you've been here for, how many of them do you remember really well? If I'm being honest, I might ask, how many of them do you remember at all? I've known some pessimistic preachers who say, oh, my congregation forgets 90% of what I say by the next morning. And I always say, I'm confident that's not true of Redeemer Bible Fellowship. And it shouldn't be, right? I mean, I, I know that at the end of one week and the beginning of another week, it, it can be demanding to listen to a lengthy sermon, which by God's grace, we try to prevent, present here without frills and gimmicks. And we should each give our careful attention to the proclamation of God's Word. We should endeavor to remember what we learn and put it into practice. And yet, despite our best intentions, we are prone to forget, aren't we? Jesus knew that we were forgetful. It's one reason He gave us communion. Because He knew we needed a way to regularly remember something that we should never forget, which is His death for us. Because we're so forgetful. And unfortunately, we can forget what we hear each Sunday when we hear God's Word proclaimed from the front. Now, I bring all this up because today, the next part of our trek into the Gospel of Matthew, we're going we're to look at the most famous sermon ever preached, one of the most well-loved parts of our Bible, truly an unforgettable sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And even though the Sermon on the Mount is 2,000 years old, it's a passage that most Christians and most people in our culture generally have some familiarity with, even if they don't realize it. You know, it's in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that we hear some of Jesus' most famous words. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The golden rule. Judge not that you be not judged. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's also in the Sermon on the Mount that we hear some of Jesus' most famous exhortations. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Do not be anxious about your life. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's also in the Sermon on the Mount that we hear some of Jesus' most serious warnings. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Sermon on the Mount is a very, very famous passage, and today we begin to study it. And what I'm going to do today is basically two things. First, I'm going to give a brief introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And then we're going to see in the opening verses of this famous passage 
that God's blessing of salvation comes only to those who cast themselves upon Him, recognizing their own utter inability, declaring their need for His help. But today I want to start with an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to start with this for two reasons. First, because we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time. Sermon on the Mount is the longest sustained portion of Jesus' teaching in the Scriptures. It covers basically all of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And not only is this section long, but it's one of the richest and the deepest portions of the whole Bible. So we're going to take some time with this study. And yet, while Matthew 5 through 7 is well known and well loved, there are some serious questions that persist about how we should understand and apply this text to our lives. And that's the second reason I've got to give you this introduction today. Because there are so many interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. One commentary has identified 36 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, many of these interpretations are nonsensical and meritless, but, but still, within confessing evangelical Protestantism, you will find a different views, a few different views about the sermon and its application to believers today. And so I think I've got to tell you from the start how I understand the sermon, especially because I know many of us come from different backgrounds. And so it's likely that some of you have heard this material presented differently than how I'm going to present it. So let me start the introduction there. How do I understand the Sermon on the Mount? Within evangelicalism today, I think the most basic interpretive controversy about these three chapters relates to who the Sermon on the Mount is for. One position says that Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is a critically important piece of teaching from Jesus to believers, which teaches us how we should live in the church age. The other position says that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with believers today. People who hold this second view, denying the current relevance of the Sermon on the Mount, typically do so for one of two reasons. Either number one, they'll say the law was given to ancient Israel, and Israel and the church are distinct, and therefore, they will say the Sermon on the Mount, which is about the law, and Israel has nothing to do with the church. Charles Ryrie of Dallas Seminary is representative of this view. When he said, quote, the Sermon on the Mount is all law and no gospel. An alternative position is that the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant, not because it looks back, backwards to ancient Israel, but because it looks forward. The people who hold this view say, well, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of Jesus, and Jesus' kingdom is future, and so the sermon is irrelevant until Jesus returns, and only then will people be expected to live in light of this revelation. Now, with respect, I find this idea that the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant totally unpersuasive and extremely dangerous. First, if these views are correct, that the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant to church-age believers, you have to wonder why the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew decades after this sermon was given and decades after Pentecost to preserve this sermon for a church-age audience. Particularly, why does Matthew give more space to the Sermon on the Mount than he does for Jesus' Sermon on Discipleship in chapters 10 and 11, or his Sermon on Community Life in chapter 18, or on the End Times in chapters 24 and 25, all of which speak to the church? Why would this one, which doesn't speak to the church, get so much more space? It wouldn't make any sense. Second, Jesus warns against people who would seek to minimize or avoid his instruction in this sermon. Matthew 5, 19. 
Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. In this sermon, Jesus is giving his authoritative interpretation on the commands of God, and he warns against minimizing what he says. And so people who come along and say, well, this sermon is irrelevant, I think are in great peril of falling under this warning. Third, this reading that the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant for the church misconstrues Jesus' instruction concerning the law and the kingdom. Now, yes, Jesus certainly talks about the Old Testament law and the Sermon on the Mount. And he basically does two things with it. First, he says the law points to him and he is the fulfillment of the law. And second, he says that God wants more than outward compliance with the letter of the law. In other words, Jesus points his hearers to an ethic that transcends the law of Moses. Now, if Israel was unable to consistently obey the law of Moses, how could anyone conform to this higher ethic that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount without being made a new creation and without the indwelling Holy Spirit? Jesus' declaration that God demands something beyond the letter of the Mosaic law shows that he cannot be speaking to ancient Israel. Additionally, for those who say, well, the kingdom's all future, I'm going to show you in a minute, Jesus clearly shows that the kingdom is not all future, and so that entire position is groundless. So for these reasons and many more, which I've excised for the sake of time, I agree with the vast majority of confessional Protestants that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to Jesus' disciples and has an immediate ongoing application in the church age. All right, with that said, what is the Sermon on the Mount about? Fundamentally, it's about what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, or what the other gospel writers call the kingdom of God. We've been introduced to this kingdom in recent chapters. Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus likewise, in Matthew 4, 17, preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 4, 23, we, we, we read that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, uh, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. All right, now Jesus and John both say the kingdom has drawn near. It is at hand. And I've told you in recent weeks that this phrase translates the Greek verb meaning to approach, in the perfect tense. And the Greek perfect tense means that something has happened in the past and it has ongoing effects. So something has happened which has caused the kingdom of heaven to come to earth and now the kingdom remains nearby. Say, so what are they talking about? What has brought the kingdom of heaven near? Well, the kingdom is near because the king has come. Jesus, the Messiah, the rightful King, has come. And in His coming, the kingdom of God has begun to burst through the darkness of this fallen world. We saw in Matthew 4.16, we're told that a light has dawned. That light is Jesus. But what are the implications of Jesus' coming? Think about this. For centuries, Israel has been bound to the law of Moses. Israel has awaited her Messiah. And now He's here. What's next? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is going to begin to answer that. As Jesus is going to reveal, something new has begun. God's demand for holiness is far greater than what people understood from the law of Moses. The people of God are to have a personal righteousness that transcends outward performance. They're to have a transformed inner life. They're to have a view of outward obedience, which is not just going through the motions, 
but rather what they do for God is an act of true worship. He's going to tell us God's people are to live a life that resists anxiety and hypocrisy. They're to have a life that's centered on Jesus and His Word. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of heaven which has drawn near and how that truth impacts the believer's walk with God and our inner life and how we deal with other people. Now I'm going to wrap this introduction up with one further point, which is there's a, a question that often comes up in the study of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the relationship between Matthew 5 through 7 and a passage in Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6, we read that immediately after appointing 12 disciples on a mountain, uh, Luke 6, 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. Verse 20, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then for the next 18 verses, we find a number of sayings which are mostly parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. What is the relationship between these two passages? Especially since one is said to be given from a mountain and the other from a level place. Some of the older translations say from a plain. Is there a contradiction here? Are these the same event? Are these different sermons? What should we make of this? There's no reason to believe that Matthew 5 is in contradiction to Luke 6. There are two possible ways to understand the relationship between these chapters. The first is that Jesus, who went throughout all of Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom, taught similar things at various times. So it's possible that the sermon in Matthew 5 happened on a mountain, and that a different sermon recorded in Luke 6 happened on a plain, and they just happened to sound very similar. That is logically possible. There is, however, another possibility, which is that these two accounts describe the same sermon. You say, well, how can that be? One was given from a mountain and one from a plain. Well, D.A. Carson has shown that the term in Luke 6, which is sometimes translated plain, is a Greek word that often speaks not of a low-lying area, but of a flat hilltop or a plateau. And so the idea of being on a mountain in Matthew may have correspondence to the idea of Jesus being on a plateau in Luke. Basically, the two descriptions can be reconciled. And so these two passages may describe the same sermon. And in fact, I think they do because they basically take place at the same point in Jesus' ministry in both of these books, and the content of the sermons is basically the same in both accounts. And so I think Luke 6 is probably another report of the sermon we have in Matthew 5 through 7. And so there will be various points as we go forward where I'm going to look at what Luke 6 says and use it to help interpret Matthew 5 through 7. All right, so that's my really brief introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We could say a lot more, but we'd never get into the text today. So let's now get into the text. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And what we're going to see today is God's blessing of salvation comes only to those who cast themselves upon him, recognizing their utter inability and their desperate need for his help. Start reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, and we'll stop there. Say, well, what crowds? At the end of chapter 4, we read, verse 23, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. All right, so Jesus has begun his ministry in Galilee and he has become famous. 
And people from the regions near Galilee are beginning to flock to see Jesus, and they have come for miracles of healing. But they found something more. They found a call to repent and believe the good news that God's kingdom is bursting forth into this dark world. They found a call to follow Jesus. And at that time, crowds began physically following Jesus around. Now, tragically, John chapter 6 tells us that most of these people in the crowds were only interested in Jesus' miracles. But we do know there were at least a few authentic followers of Jesus there. For starters, we saw in chapter 4 that Jesus has called four people who have sincerely responded to him thus far, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Luke chapter 6 tells us that at this same time, Jesus added eight more men to his inner circle of disciples. We'll talk about the 12 in Matthew chapter 10. But at this point, Jesus has attracted both real followers and hangers-on who want some free bread. And as Jesus looks at the crowd, we read, He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and we'll stop there. At first, this seems like it's one of those times in the Gospels when Jesus retreats from the crowd. You know, the crowd was a demanding bunch. And while God the Son in His deity can talk to millions of people at the same time and not be fatigued, in His humanity, sometimes Jesus needed to get away, to commune with the Father privately or to spend some time with His disciples. And if we weren't told otherwise, it would be very easy to read these two verses and imagine that's what's happening. Jesus is withdrawing from the crowd, and He's only going to spend time with the disciples. But that's actually not the case. If you look at the very last verses in chapter 7, what you'll find, Matthew 7, 28, is that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus going up on the mountain is not withdrawing from the crowd. The sermon was primarily for Jesus' disciples. They drew near, they had the best seats. But the crowd is going to hear Jesus' sermon too. And they will benefit from and be astonished by the depth and the power of Jesus' teaching. Now what did Jesus say? Well, I've told you already, Jesus has a lot of important subjects to cover in this passage about the law, about uh, how we practice our righteousness, about um, anxiety and hypocrisy, about Him being the sure rock for our lives. But before He gets into any of that, Jesus starts with a series of blessings. Matthew 5, verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are some very famous words. Collectively, they're called the Beatitudes. Not because, as some people say, these are attitudes that we ought to be, but these are a series of blessings. And in Latin, the word for blessing is Uh, Beatitudo. So let me make just a few general observations about our text before we get into what it means. First, there's a clear break in the text between verse 10 and verse 11. In verses 3 through 10, 
We find eight blessings, which are all presented very similarly, using third-person pronouns and verbs, talking about they. Then in verses 11 and 12, we find a ninth blessing, which is much longer and more complex, and it's built around second-person pronouns and verbs, talking about you. Okay? Now, I'm highlighting this because I want us to focus today mainly on verses 3 through 10, the initial list of eight blessings, which are all similar in form. Within this list, there are a few things that I want you to see. This is why it's really important. I want you guys to have a Bible in front of you so you can see this for yourself. Number one, notice the first and the last blessing on this list end in the same way. This is very, very important. Okay. In the ancient world, writers did not use punctuation. They didn't even have lowercase letters. They didn't put spaces between their words or their paragraphs. So when somebody wanted to draw attention to a new idea, they had to build in a marker into the text itself so that you knew this is a really important idea that I'm supposed to pay attention to. They had to invent rhetorical and literary structures to, to basically do what we do with punctuation and, and putting spaces in. Jesus begins his sermon using one such rhetorical structure called an inclusion. Inclusions are found throughout the Bible and throughout ancient literature. And what an inclusion is, is it's a list of something that begins and ends in the same way. And what an inclusion does is it tells you that whatever this statement is that be appears at the beginning and the end of the list, that's what the whole list is about. Okay, now, I know that's kind of technical, but I think it's really important for us to understand the Beatitudes. Okay, so in verse 3 we're told, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, we read, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The repeated idea is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That tells us that's what this whole list is about. Those who possess the kingdom of heaven. Now, you'll notice Jesus doesn't repeat that idea six more times in the middle. He doesn't say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't have to. By using this inclusion, he's already signaled that to his hearers. The inclusion gives Jesus another advantage, too. He's allowed to use synonyms now to unpack what it means to possess the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus speaks of mourners being comforted. Because this appears in this inclusion, we understand the comfort he's talking about is the comfort of the kingdom of heaven. He speaks of the meek inheriting the earth. Because it's within this inclusion, we understand that inheritance is part of the kingdom of heaven. This whole list is about having or being part of the kingdom of heaven. All right, now let me bring out another lay of structure here. Notice that the first and last items on this list use a present tense verb. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's present. That tells us the kingdom of heaven is currently obtainable and present, at least to some degree. Yet, the second item through the seventh item on this list all use future tense verbs. And this tells us, indeed, the kingdom of heaven does have a future fuller aspect. There is to be a consummation. So here we get some really clear evidence that helps us understand what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom in this book. The kingdom has drawn near. There is a present tense sense in which the kingdom is here, but it's not here in its fullness. The consummation is still to come. And only then will the full blessedness of God come to the people of Christ. Now, There's one more thing I want to bring out here. Of the eight items on this list between verse 3 through 10, there's a natural division in the middle between verse 6 and 7. In Greek, the first four items on this list, 
being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek and hungering for righteousness, all begin with the same Greek letter, the letter uh, P or Pi. The other four letters do not have this alliteration. And what this does is it splits the list into two parts, and it gives us the sense that the first four items on this list all are very closely related to one another in a way that the other items on this list aren't. Say, wow, that's a lot of close reading. What does this have to do with me? Okay, I want to draw your attention to this first because we really need to understand this passage. Matthew puts this right at the beginning of the book. This is the first serious teaching of Jesus we see in the book. We've gotten a summary so far from him and one obscure statement to John the Baptist. This is the, the presentation of Jesus Matthew puts up front in the book. So we really need to understand what Jesus is saying here. But the other thing I want you to see here is Jesus was an amazing teacher. Think about how he has carefully layered and structured this presentation in this really complex way. It's a masterpiece of teaching. He demonstrates the same level of planning and skill throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. There's a reason we remember the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not just because Jesus has some great one-liners in there. It is structured to be memorable. I think sometimes we say Jesus is a great teacher and like evangelicals freeze up because like that's what people say as a sop to like deny his deity or his death, right? But like, friends, we should own the fact Jesus is a great teacher. He is the God-man. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And he is the greatest teacher who ever lived, okay? So let's now get into the text. We're going to look at the first four blessings today, verses 3 through 6, which I've said are all closely related. And remember, our study of the structure we just did shows us this list describes those who presently possess the kingdom of heaven. This is really important because often the Beatitudes are read in the exact opposite way. Often people read the Beatitudes as a checklist for how I get into the kingdom of heaven. As though I can be saved if I just do this checklist. Oh, I'm merciful. I'm a peacemaker. I didn't punch out that guy who insulted me the other day. I guess I'm good, right? No, that's not the idea at all. Jesus is not giving us a checklist for admittance into the kingdom. No, he is describing those who have already been saved through their repentant faith. So Jesus is describing believers here. And in the first four Beatitudes, we see believers are people who have come to the recognition that we have a great need for salvation, that we are totally dependent on God, that we are unable to save ourselves. And we begin to see this in the first Beatitude, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Luke's account, he records Jesus said this in Luke 6.20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. At first, Luke sounds like he's teaching salvation by poverty. And what's interesting is that we find other passages that likewise speak in strong terms of God having a positive disposition towards the poor. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives a sermon in Nazareth. It's a very controversial sermon. And he gets up and he reads from Isaiah 61. And he says, that's about me. And one of the things he read that, that really made his point, he said, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He says the poor are the recipients of the gospel. Or listen to what Jesus' brother James says, James chapter 2. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? James says the poor are the heirs of the kingdom. James chapter 1. He says the poor will soon be exalted and the rich will be humiliated. What are we to make of these sorts of verses that put such emphasis on poverty? 
Well, usually in the evangelical church, we are quick to downplay the economic implications of these verses. I remember being in an affluent ministry context, and anytime I'd come across one of these verses, the first thing I'd say is, God loves rich people too, because we didn't want to offend the big givers, right? But that, that pressure is a little dangerous. Yes, in the Bible we find examples of rich believers, right? Abraham, David, Job, Joseph of Arimathea. Yes, they were rich, and yes, they, were, they, they followed Christ, uh, or what they knew of God at the time. But the truth is, most of the rich people in the Bible are not godly, right? Think about Pharaoh. Think about Ahab, or Caiaphas, or Belshazzar, or the Herods, okay? The Bible repeatedly warns us that wealth can prove spiritually dangerous. We're going to see that both in the Sermon on the Mount and in Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler later. We must not run from the biblical truth that riches can stumble us into evil living and evil desires. And we must acknowledge the truth that throughout history most believers have been poor and most rich people have died without Christ. But all of that being said, does the Bible teach salvation by poverty? As the Latin American Marxist revolutionary priests of the last century taught, or as many mainline Protestants seem to teach today, no. For starters, you can't take a handful of verses and turn them against the rest of the Bible. Yes, in Luke 6 and James 2, the poor are basically equated with the saved. But to be poor is not always positively portrayed in the Bible. Think about the Proverbs. In Proverbs, the path to wisdom is often said to lead to riches, and it is the path of folly that leads to poverty. That's not a positive outcome. Think of the prodigal son who squandered his inheritance. When he goes broke and heads for the pig farm, he's not a positive example of salvation. Additionally, we're told plainly throughout the New Testament that God is no respecter of persons. The human categories that we think are so important or unimportant do not weigh in God's evaluation of us. And of course, Ephesians 2 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If salvation were by poverty, we could all renounce our possessions as the Buddhist monks do and thereby earn our salvation. And then we could boast, I gave up a lot more than you did. But friends, that's not the basis of our salvation. Our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's death and resurrection alone, not our socioeconomic status. So why then does Jesus speak of the poor in Luke 6 as being those who are presently part of the kingdom? Because in the Old Testament, the term poor began to mean something more than just being broke. It had begun to speak of a spiritual position. Psalm 35 says, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor and needy from him who robs him? Here we see that God stands up for the unjustly oppressed. You say, well, why are the poor being oppressed? Psalm 37 tells us, The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. The psalmist says oppression is befalling those who love God, and as a result, they are be the believers are becoming poor. So poor in the Old Testament doesn't just equal economically downtrodden usually. No, it talks about those who suffer materially because of their loyalty to the Lord. The biblical blessings upon the poor are not simply God promising to reverse the fortunes of this life, no, they're a recognition that God sees the suffering of his people and acts in their defense. But Matthew reports that Jesus said not simply what Luke said, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Now, this clarification tells us this is not just a statement about those with a small bank balance. Jesus is talking about a spiritual attitude. What attitude? Well, sometimes people have interpreted poor in spirit to mean those who are not very spiritual or those who are cowardly. Is that the idea? No. I think we can understand the meaning of poor in spirit by, again, looking to the Old Testament. Psalm 40. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 34, which we read just a few minutes ago. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Psalm 86, 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. You know who said all those things? King David. David wasn't living under a bridge. He was a king. He was rich. But David recognized that before the Lord, even a king is a pauper, is a needy man. Because spiritually, even David could not benefit himself. He was entirely dependent on the Lord to sustain his life, to sustain his crown, to make good on his promises. David, even though he was wealthy, was poor in spirit because he recognized his need for the Lord. And this same recognition of our own inability to meet our spiritual needs is what Jesus is talking about here. I think this is especially clear to us that we are spiritually impoverished when we think about the implications of sin. The unbelieving sinner, according to Ephesians 2, is dead, is following the course of this world, is following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. Jesus in John 8 says the unbeliever is a slave to sin. Paul in Romans 3 says there is none righteous, not one, no one seeks for God. The Bible says apart from Christ, we have nothing no ability to commend ourselves to God, no relationship with God, no desire for righteousness. And that's the idea, friends. We are totally helpless and hopeless apart from Jesus. We can spiritually live only by his kind provision. And Jesus here says that only those who have this outlook are a part of his kingdom. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Friends, you cannot come to Christ in arrogance. Do you remember the Pharisee? He prayed, God, I'm so thankful. I'm not like those sinners. I'm not like that tax collector over there. And Jesus said he was not commended to God. He was not forgiven. But the tax collector who came and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, who recognized his need for God's grace, he found forgiveness. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You've got to recognize you are unable in yourself, and you've got to cast yourself on Jesus. And only those who come to this recognition can be saved. You've got to understand you cannot commend yourself to God. So to be a believer is to be poor in spirit, by definition. And Jesus says that it is those who recognize their dependence on God who presently have a real connection to the kingdom, who enjoy its blessings currently, who have a relationship with God, who have forgiveness, who on this side of Pentecost have the Holy Spirit, who, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, have access to every spiritual blessing presently. The poor in spirit have the kingdom. That's the first beatitude. All right, let's look at the second beatitude, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, as with the first beatitude, this one also seems connected to Isaiah 61, which is the passage Jesus in Nazareth said was about him. Isaiah 61, 2 says, The Messiah will comfort all who mourn. Now, it's easy to read this statement and think about the mourning being the grief that comes with the death of a loved one. This week I've been mourning, 
I know many of you have been mourning as one of our dear friends, our brother Wayne, went to be with Jesus. And I'm thankful he's in Christ's presence, but I miss him a lot. I mourn his loss. And so we may read Matthew 5, 4 and think about that kind of mourning. And certainly there is a promise that believers who mourn the loss of other believers will be comforted. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a promise of glorious reunion with those who have died in Christ. Revelation 21 tells us God himself in the end will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the end, friends, our bereavements will find full and utter comfort in the presence of God. But I don't think that's the kind of grief Jesus is talking about here because of what Luke says at this point in his account, Luke chapter 6, verse 21. He says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In Luke, Jesus' statement about mourning doesn't sound like it's related to grieving death. Instead, it's a contrast to laughter, to an attitude that makes light of the things of this life, an attitude of indifference to sin, an attitude that says, there's no God. There's no consequences to my actions. I can do what I want. I will laugh about it in the dark corner. But in contrast to this evil attitude is the person who recognizes that there is a God and that there are consequences. The mourner here is, first of all, the person who laments their own sin. Who, as David says in Psalm 38, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. The mourner here also, I think, is the person who laments the presence of sin in the believing community. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul exposes sin in the midst of a church, and he says, you're arrogant. The church bragged about it. Oh, we're so enlightened. We have the new morality. Paul says, ought you not rather to mourn? The presence of unrepentant sin in the church is something to lament. So is the presence of sin in society around us. A few weeks ago, we looked at Ezekiel 9, in which God judged Jerusalem for idolatry. And there God says he will spare those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. Listen to Psalm 119. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The mourning in view here is mourning which is responsive to the awfulness of sin. Personally and among the church and in society around us. A mourning that recognizes that our war with sin goes on. Yes, Jesus has won victory in principle at the cross, but do we not battle daily for holiness, friends? And in that fight, are we not dependent on the Lord for His mercy and His help? Are we sensitive to the reality and the evil of sin, or are we hardened and indifferent to it? By definition, the believer is someone who is and, and, and must be aware of the terribleness of sin and who mourns it. Because we've seen in recent weeks that Jesus calls us to repent. How can we repent if we don't see sin as wicked? If we don't see our sin as something to mourn? The mournful attitude is part of what repentance means. So Jesus says, those who are connected to the kingdom presently are those who mourn. But then he makes a future tense promise. That we believing friends who mourn evil will be comforted. God will overturn our sorrow. Now, this is a future tense verb. 
We cannot expect this sorrow to end in our lives because we're still here in a fallen world, in our fallen bodies. We still sin and we know other people who sin and we see sin in our society and when we see sin, we're going we're to keep mourning. That's what it is to live in this world. And during this time, we can draw consolation from the scriptures. We can see that if we have faith in Christ, we're forgiven. We can draw strength from the biblical assurance of salvation, from the promise that one day Christ will return. But friends, the day is coming when that will be more than a promise, when it will be actuality, when God will set all things right. We won't have to mourn anymore because 1 Corinthians 15 says, then God will be all in all and His holiness will be the ethic of the day. Those who mourn for sin will be comforted. Let's look now at the third beatitude, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of meekness is kind of hard to define. I think in modern Christianity, meekness is often seen as equal to weakness. But that's not right at all. This Greek word is often used to describe kings and judges, the powerful, not the weak. And when this word is used, it usually speaks of powerful figures who use their office in a kind way not being quick to drop the full weight of their power on others. That's meekness. It's a gentle, patient forbearance. Jesus was meek. Jesus is the Son of God. By His merest thought, the whole universe could unravel in an instant. And yet He deals graciously with sinners. Think about it. You're still here, right? How many times have you sinned? First time we sinned, Jesus would have been totally just to throw us straight into hell. But He graciously forbears. He is patient. The believer is likewise to be meek. We find this same word in attribute lists that talk about the Christian life. In Galatians 5.23, this same word appears. There it's translated gentleness. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Or think about the godly woman of 1 Peter 3, who labors with an unbelieving husband. And we're told she is to display a gentle or a meek spirit, not unleashing righteous frustration, though that would be easy to do, but being patiently forbearing. The believer is called to meekness. But how does meekness relate to the idea that we are dependent on God? Well, first, because it's a Christian virtue. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And so we cannot produce it on our own, believing friends. We are to strive for it as much as we can. But in the end, like the rest of our sanctification and Christian growth, meekness is ultimately the work of God in us. And so we are dependent on God for meekness. But second, to be meek is to be humble. It is choosing not to assert yourself, but forbearing what you could force or insist upon. Meekness says, I'm going to trust God with this, and I'm not going to take it for myself. And this idea that there is a close relationship between meekness and humility was understood by first century Jews. Nine times the Greek word translated meek here appears in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in every case but one, when this word appears in the Septuagint, it does not appear to, to describe gracious, forbearing patience. Instead, it's always used as a synonym for humility. So Psalm 25, 9 says, God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. In the Septuagint, the word humble there is the same word we find meek in Matthew 5. Psalm 149, 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. It's the same word in the Septuagint. What I want you to understand from this is, is this point. This Greek word we translated meek means more than meek. It also means humble. 
And so that just as with the poor in spirit, just as with the one who mourns for sin, this third group whom Jesus blesses are also people who are dependent upon God. Those who don't say, I'm going to take what I want. Instead, they say, I'm going to trust this to the Lord. And they look to Him as their source of blessing. And what does Jesus say about the meek? Well, He quotes from Psalm 37. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, in the original context, the idea seems to be that a believing, believing Israelite will inherit the land of Israel. But Jesus here expands this promise. This isn't just about getting a strip of land in the Mediterranean. Just as in Romans 4, Paul recognizes God has expanded his promise to give Abraham the promised land of Canaan. In Romans 4, Paul says, no, no, no. Now Abraham and his offspring will be the heir of the world. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, when Jesus returns, he will conquer the whole globe. He will subjugate the whole globe. And then the meek, those who humbly chose to trust the Lord rather than sinfully asserting themselves, then they will come into their inheritance and they will inherit the kingdom which governs the whole earth. Now, I need to tell you this is radically different from what many Christians choose to believe today. These days, an increasing number of voices in the American church are proclaiming something called dominion theology, which says that we need to assert ourselves and we need to wield the levers of politics and we need to take the kingdom for Christ. But believing friends, we don't inherit the earth that way. We inherit the earth because it is Jesus who will come and take the kingdom and then we will take our inheritance, but not because we rose up and seized it, but because we patiently entrusted ourselves to the Lord. And as this word describes, the meek and the humble, it describes the believer who must humbly acknowledge that we are sinners, who are dependent on God's grace and mercy. Only that humble posture can inherit the kingdom. Finally, now let's look at the fourth beatitude. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now remember, Jesus is only describing believers here. And he says that the believer will be blessed because he or she hungers or thirsts for righteousness. Hunger and thirst, these are strong words that speak of an intense desire born of necessity. Now, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us believers have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Christ has taken our sin. He has given us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he has reckoned to us the full righteousness and obedience of Christ. That is true for every believer. So why then should the believer who has the perfect righteousness of Christ still desperately cry for righteousness? Because while God sees us as having the righteousness of Christ, our experience in this life is that we all stumble in many ways. Isn't it? We still sin. And the more we grow in Christ, the more, I hope, we become frustrated about the fact that we're still battling our sin. I don't know about you, but there are times I look at my life and I think, how have I not progressed beyond this? I'm still fighting the same stuff I was years ago. Maybe not to the same degree, but how is this still lingering around? And in this desperation, in our hatred of our sin, in this desire for increased righteousness, do we not cry out to God for mercy and help? And that's the idea here. The person who has repentantly come to Christ understands that our sin is evil, that we long to be rid of it, and yet we fail so often, and it's frustrating. We have a heart cry for righteousness, but we still battle. But Jesus says, believing friend, you just wait, because soon your cry will be fully satisfied, 
Because as Philippians 1 says, God is faithful to complete the work that Christ has begun in you. As James says in chapter 1 of his book, one day you will be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 8 says, one day you will be conformed to the image of Christ. But again, this is the path of dependence on God. It is the path of humility that recognizes we fail so often. It is the path that says, God, I need your mercy because I fail. It's the path that recognizes that every bit of growth we experience in this life comes not from us, but from the Spirit, according to Galatians 3. We are entirely dependent on God, who alone can begun the work He has begun. Because He alone can transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, Philippians 3 says. And so believers who battle in this life for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord will in the end obtain their reward and enjoy the new creation, the place of boundless righteousness forever. What do we see in these first four Beatitudes? The people of God are marked by our humble dependence upon God. This can be tough for some of us. Because for a long time in this country, we promoted rugged individualism, which says, I don't need anybody else. But friends, you cannot hold that attitude about spiritual things, or you will be lost. You are needy for a Savior. If you resist that truth, how can you be saved? The path of salvation is the path that declares our inability and our dependence on Christ. More recently, many Americans today have developed a comfort with being dependent. Being dependent on the state or on the approval of the culture. But friends, you cannot trust the state or the culture with your spirituality. If you resist that truth, how can you be saved? Because the state and the culture belong to the domain of this fallen world. And to turn to Christ is to be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. The path of salvation is, is marked by humbly mourning our sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And if you want to be saved, you've got to turn away from the, the, the master who the state and the world follow, which is Satan, and you've got to turn to Christ and declare your dependence on Him. So this morning, friends, let us declare our dependence on Jesus. If you've never recognized your own inability to reconcile yourself to God or to gain salvation, I call on you, turn from your sin and cast yourself upon Jesus. Ask for His mercy on the basis of His death and resurrection. If you are a follower of Jesus, do not forget what we've seen today. We all enter salvation by recognizing that we are poor in spirit and humbly mourning for our sin and thirsting for righteousness. But afterwards, it's easy to drift, isn't it? It's easy to become arrogant. It's easy to rationalize our sin. It's easy to become self-assertive and stop being meek like Jesus. It's easy to become indifferent to righteousness. But friends, we must remember the path that Christ has called us to. We must remember that by His grace and mercy only can we be where He wants us to be. And by His grace and mercy, we can return to where we should be in our walk with Christ. Because the people of God, the saved, must be humbly dependent on Jesus. So may God grant us repentance where we need to repent. May God help us to trust Him evermore. And may God help us to remember the word of the Lord in Isaiah 66 too. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word.